is it possible that a predator has learned to disguise itself in human skin? And then sleepwalking. 4% of all Americans sleepwalk at some point in their life. And we've even heard stories about people committing brutal crimes while they were asleep. But something even more brutal, even more dark can happen when you close your eyes and fall asleep. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. First off, let's give a shout out to our newest Patreon, Medusa Buzzcut. Medusa, thank you so much for supporting the show. That's a pretty dope name. I kind of get credit where credit's due. Medusa Buzzcut. It sounds like some sort of military operation. Sounds like something like, sounds like some operation the CIA would come up with. Go hunting bad guys. Medusa Buzzcut. That's a great name. So, Medusa, you're going to be our pilot this episode. Whatever vehicle we take, you're going to be in charge of. If you can't support the Patreon, that's fine too. Just help get the word out about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. Reviewing the show, talking about it with your friends, all those things help. Medusa, first off, we're going to use a vehicle we haven't used in a while, the Carpenter Caboose. Have we ever used that? Is that something that we've had before? We're leaving behind the Jason station. Choo-choo! And we're taking the Carpenter Caboose. And we're leaving behind Oregon. We're headed out to Manhattan in New York. It's October 1st, 1999. And our train pulls into the subway station. Everyone's like, what? Where's my subway? I'm supposed to get to work. Instead, this old-timey train billowing out coal. Coal smoke. I think this is regular smoke. It's extra toxic when it's coming out of the carpenter caboose. Everyone's like, Basically, we appear, and we're jumping off the train. We're at Penn Station. We see a young woman get off her subway car and begin filing out of the station. Now, it's 5 p.m. It's not super late. It's actually rush hour. So there's a bunch of people bustling about. This woman's walking through Penn Station, and she takes the escalator up to the street level. And when she gets up to street level, about 30 feet away, she sees someone who immediately catches her attention. Now, even though it's New York City, it's rush hour, the place is bustling, this man, she is drawn to this man. One of the things that draws her attention to him is he's six foot seven, which is unusually large for any human, right? It's not the NBA playoffs, it's the subway system. So even if even the NBA playoffs, you'd go like, oh, that guy's kind of tall. He's six foot seven. He's just standing there. And the way he's standing, she immediately knows something's off. He has broad shoulders. He's standing there with his back arched. And his elbows are pointed backwards. And she notices he's looking at all of the people who are walking around. He's motionless. He's standing there, arched back, elbows pointed out. Just standing there staring at everyone. She says, from his angle, it looked like he was only really able to see the tops of people's heads. Like he was purposely taking this bizarre stance. He's looking at the top of people's heads. Now, she got the idea that he was trying to choose one of them. She looked at his face for only a second. She immediately turns, looks at the ground, and begins walking away as fast as she can. And as she's leaving the scene, she gets the sensation that if she turns around, she's doomed. That fear washes over her. If she turns around and looks again at this man, it's all over. She says his face was light gray. She said it was almost white. 
not like white Caucasian, but white, chalky, inhuman-like. He had a thick brow. And even in that brief glimpse that she saw of his face directly, she says his eyes seemed like they could stare right through you. And she turns, she leaves the area. She never looks back. The story is so simple, and that's what makes it creepy. This, again, came out of uh, thinkaboutitdocs.com, a website I go to a lot, and they got it from the New Fork website. And New Fork is the National UFO Reporting Center. So although this story didn't actually involve a UFO, some sort of strange phenomenon took place here. The reason why I think the story is particularly chilling is when I was reading it, and even when I was uh, repeating it to you, that posture reminds me of a vulture just standing there looking for someone to choose. It was standing there with a purpose. It wasn't a junkie passed out. It wasn't just someone waiting for their train. It stood there in that pose, staring at people for a purpose. And again, it also reminded me of a predator in the sense that it being so still, it almost blends into the background. How many predators do we know? Like a Venus flytrap, obviously tigers are going to keep chasing you. But even then, like, a cougar doesn't sit there and it's not playing the bongos in the jungle. It sits and it waits and watches you pass by. It knows where you are before you know where it's at. It waits for the best moment to attack. That's what this felt like. It's interesting because this is not the middle of a wheat field in Kansas at 2 a.m. This is a bustling subway system. This thing very well could have been, you could say it's alien, but I almost figured that's like almost downplaying it. It almost feels, like I kind of mentioned in the introduction, a predator that has disguised itself as a human, that has taken human form. The statuesque tall man, out of place, out of place. And everyone else is going about their business. They're reading the newspaper. They're thinking about what they're going to do for dinner. They're trying to figure out what else is going on. They're passing by this six foot seven man. They're too busy. They're looking down at their watch, at their shoes. They're not taking in everything. It was just this woman who could see this thing. Camouflage in plain sight. Took a form of a human, but got it wrong. Clay gray skin, six foot seven. But the eyes of the predator remained. If it was some sort of creature, and it's standing there and it's looking for a suitable victim. If it figures someone actually uncovered its disguise, that woman was in great danger. Everyone else passing by, luck of the draw if this creature makes a move on them. But if this thing, whatever it was, felt like it could be exposed... It may have seen out of the corner of its eye a woman stare, slightly recoil, turn and walk away. And this creature standing there looking at all these other people walking by. And then it thinks, did she see me? Does she know what I am? Its head slowly turns and watches her walk. If she turns around, if she looks again, she saw me. Then I don't have a choice. Of who to kill tonight. I have to kill her. The whole subway station is full of people. Walking by. Totally unaware of these events that are going on. And he's looking at her. And she 
feels the fear. She knows if she turns around, she will not make it home. She leaves the area. Later, she reports this to the National UFO Reporting Center. Where is this thing now? Does it have the same form, or has it perfected its ability to camouflage into human society? Is it shorter now? The skin color's a little more on point. It doesn't stand in such a bizarre way. But the eyes are still there, the menacing eyes that can stare right through you. If you're ever in a crowd of people and you see someone that seems a little off, standing there in the corner, you can't really put your finger on it, but something is not right about them. Will you be able to resist the temptation to turn back around and take another look? Because if you do, you might uncover the truth that there really are predators disguised as us, looking for the right victim. And you just made that choice a whole lot easier for them. Interesting, spooky story. Medusa bus cut. Let's go ahead and hop in that carboner copter. And as we leave behind New York, this woman's chasing. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I looked back, I looked back. We'll save her, you know, because we're helpful. We save her. Tall guy shaking his giant tall fist at us as we fly away. We're flying away. We've saved this woman. I actually want to segue into this to a Dead Rabbit Recommends. I saw this movie a long time ago. It's, it fits all, it really hits all of the things that I like about movies. Self-contained horror movie. Um, that's really the big one. I like movies that take place in one location. There's a movie called Super Hybrid. This is a creature feature, so it's not like the super cerebral horror movie like Resolution or Interior or Rewind. I've recommended all of those in the past. This one's a really interesting creature feature. It's about, it's going to sound stupid when I tell you what it is, but it's about a octopus that learns to... <laughs> this is a good movie. It's very, very... It's a good thriller. It's about an octopus who learns how to disguise itself as a car. And that's kind of, I think, pretty much given away in the beginning. I don't... I, that might be a first act twist. But the whole movie takes place in this auto wrecker yard. It's like this guy owns this high-rise, like, parking garage type place. And he tows cars and he brings them here. And they tow this monster car into this facility and it's funny because as i was watching it i was getting like low-grade panic attacks because the boss is one of the the worst bosses ever not just the fact that people are getting murdered by this monster car and he's like i'm taking that out of your paycheck you bled all over those other cars he's just such a he's i i you know i don't like to curse but he's just such a bad boss like, it, just the first 20 minutes of him, maybe the first half hour, the first act is just him being, I've, we've all had bosses like that. Um, watch, if you're a boss like that, watch that movie, and then maybe you'll stop being a boss like that. Just real, I just remember watching it being like, ugh, this reminds me of like 15 jobs I've had. And that is actually a testament to the acting and to the writing. Like, the, the character of the boss was super irritating, and I couldn't stand when he was on screen. And to me, that's a testament of good acting and good writing because it was so realistic. But it's called Super Hybrid. It is a, it's a, just a really fast-paced horror movie. You have this octopus disguised as a car. And it basically, they explain that, you know, it just hyper-evolved. It used to disguise itself as, like, shells, this species of octopus used to disguise itself as shells or change the color of the floor. And then they're like, and then it just, I mean, I know that's kind of like, it's goofy, but just, I thought it was really well done. It's a very well shot, well directed, well acted, well written horror movie with a ridiculous premise, but I, it's very enjoyable. And the creature is near indestructible. 
Because not only do you have to basically fight a car, and you're trapped in a three-story, like, um, parking lot full of a bunch of damaged cars. This thing looks like a damaged car. Not only do you have to try to destroy a car, the thing is wicked smart, as they say in Boston. It's not the most highfalutin horror movie, but I saw it like four or five years ago, and I still think about it. It still pops in my head. Even reading this story, I was having flashbacks to that. I was like, oh yeah, super hybrid. So that, again, is a sign of a good creature feature when you're thinking about it years later, because a lot of them are pretty disposable. But we know the carpenter copter is not an octopus, or is it? Medusa Buzzcut might be one for all I know has eight arms. That's why Medusa can fly the Carpenter Copter so well. We're leaving behind the Dead Rabbit Recommends of Super Hybrid. We're leaving behind the Creepy Man in New York City. One of three million. We're headed out to Pickering, Ontario. This was actually recommended to me from Fabio Nurbon uh, via Gmail. He's actually sent me some other stuff. I don't recall what it was at the time. I think it was the Possessed Family who was doing the Ouija board and Huffing Paint. That was a while ago. And some other witch story in Italy, I believe. He sent us some good stuff over, and this one I had never heard of before. So, tip of the hat to you. Let's go ahead and land that carpenter copter. We're in Pickering, Ontario. It's May 4th, 1987. Kenneth Parks, he's 23 years old. He's married. Things have been going pretty good in his life until recently. He started to gamble a lot, and then, the that's fine, right? But then you get into the part where you become a gambling addict, and then you end up losing money. And then you end up owing money. That's the bad part of it, right? If you can gamble responsibly, that's cool. Some people can't. Some people can't even run responsibly. They get runners high and they get addicted to running. I mean, sure, that's pretty cool. Like, you can run a lot if there's every zombie apocalypse. Like, I'm just going to crawl on your back and you can take me everywhere. But we think you have a problem. That would be really hard to do an intervention for someone who's addicted to running because you have to catch them first. They're like, ah, running away. But anyways... That's not this guy. This guy had gambling debts, and then he had to pay off the gambling debts, so he began embezzling money from his job, and then the job finds out he gets fired. So one night he falls asleep. He's watching SNL, watching a little Saturday Night Live. (sighs) Falls asleep. His eyes flutter open, and he's standing in a police station, and he looks down, and his hands are cut to the bone. He sees large gashes, muscle torn, and that unmistakable red-white color of human bone. And he begins screaming in the police station, My hands! My hands! But the police are actually more concerned with something he said right before he began screaming about his hands. Just minutes earlier, police officers are filling stuff out, doing paperwork and stuff. And a man walks in, bloody hands. Cops look up, and the man goes up to him and says, I've just killed two people. My God, I've just killed two people. And the officer said, they're watching this guy. He comes in, he's all bloody. They believe him. They believe him, right? Because his hands are all cut to pieces. But as the cops are talking to him after he admits to killing people, they can tell he wakes up. Like, there is a moment where he says that, And then as the cops are processing what's going on, his demeanor changes, his voice changes, and he realizes for the first time, Kenneth realizes for the first time, his hands are cut to pieces. So even the cops are like, we noticed the shift. It was as if he woke up. Sleepwalking's pretty common. I'm not going to bore you with the details, even though I did a bunch of research on it. 
Uh, one in three adults sleepwalk at some point in their life, and three to four percent of Americans sleepwalk regularly. So that's pretty common. That's pretty common. It's usually men, and it usually runs in families. Two percent of adults admit to being violent in their sleep. And people who steady sleepwalking, sleep issues go, we think it's actually higher than that. My grandpa, I remember hearing a story when I was a kid, my grandpa once was asleep, and he thought that people had broken into his house and were trying to attack his kids. So he began beating up my grandma, who was in bed next to him. She's laying there, and the next thing you know, he's like, get away from my kids, and he's punching my grandma. She has to first, you know, defend herself and then wake him up. That was never reported to the police. That was like back in the 60s. That was never reported to the police. She wasn't hurt. She didn't go to hospital or anything like that. So that's why sleep specialists think the number's way higher than 2%. They said, most cases, if the other person is injured at all, they just go to the hospital. They don't involve the law enforcement. But they go, they may not even be injured at all. Like if someone, you don't go to a hospital because you get a bloody nose, right? Now, I don't know how many times I've been punched in the face and you don't you don't go to the doctor. And if you know that it was a total accident and the person was asleep, you're just like, what? My grandpa never laid a hand on my grandma. Ever. But that night, he was having such a horrible dream about their kids getting at someone who broke into the house in the dream and was trying to kill the kids, beating her up. So they, they figured actually is more than 2% of that happens. Now, we sleepwalking, I think everyone knows about that. And I think the idea of murdering people in your sleep it's pretty well known in the true crime community because every so often it's used as an excuse. I don't know how well that's known in the general community, but Kenneth Pickering, there's a ton of stories about it. I picked this Kenneth Pickering one because it's one of the more recent ones, but it goes way back. They can go back to the 1800s of this type of stuff happening. Kenneth Parks falls asleep on the couch, and then this is how insane sleepwalking can be. And he had a history of sleepwalking. That ends up playing a part as we get to the end of this, but... He got in his car, drove down a busy highway for 14 miles, totally asleep. Now, your eyes aren't closed, your arms aren't straight out like you're in a Looney Tune cartoon. Like, to other people, you appear to be awake. He gets in his car, he drives 14 miles to his in-law's house, he lets himself in with his own key, picks up a tire iron as he enters the house, and beats his mother-in-law to death with the tire iron, and then chokes his father-in-law. The father-in-law survived. Mother-in-law did not. He, then he drives to the police station all by himself, and he goes, and I've, I've killed some people. And then he wakes up. This was a huge court case, obviously, because people, unfortunately, murder people all the time. But every so often, a story comes out that's so bizarre, like some weird motive or some weird alibi or something like that. This guy, Kenneth, was actually acquitted of these charges. Because he, they were his defense was able to prove that he had a history of sleep issues. He was under a lot of stress. The mother-in-law's family, the victim's family, was like, you know, he was closer to them than he was to his own parents. Uh, the his wife was like, we totally believe that this was uh, sleep sleep related. We don't think he would actually kill his mother-in-law. And what's interesting is you had all of these researchers really have to come and study this case. And sleep researchers, because this happens, but you don't get a lot of data coming in on this. Because like I said, some, sometimes it'll happen to people and they won't talk about it. You had people going over this. I was reading this article about this. I got a lot of this information from an article in Psychology Today called Dangerous Dreamers. And they were saying that we have to look to be able to tell if someone's telling the truth. And kind of more importantly, we have to be able to tell when somebody's lying. 
Because people will use this as an excuse. People will go and load a gun and then shoot someone and go, I was sleeping. (laughs) And the prosecution's like, we actually think this was not an accident. We think this was actually premeditated murder. It's a thing called malingering, malingering, something like that, where some malag, malagnine, I don't remember. But the point is, is it's a word that I can't pronounce that means you're making up an illness. It's an existing illness that you're using it to cover. I used to actually be obsessed with this idea. I remember I watched a ton of forensic files because I'm a big true crime junkie, more so back in the day, but ton of forensic files and documentaries about sleepwalking and murder and stuff like that. And this is actually pretty well-known stuff as far as sleepwalking, murder stuff. It's not the most well-known, but if you're a fan of true crime, you've come across these type of stories. What I had never heard of before, which is 100 times creepier than murdering someone in your sleep. This is what Fabio sent me. This is absolutely terrifying. Committing suicide while you are asleep. This is something that, it, it actually has a name for it, because it, 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 this is a really interesting issue. It's called parasomnia pseudo-suicide, because it's not real suicide, right? But you are taking your own life. We don't know if it happens, technically, because you're dead. Like, someone who walks into a police station and they wake up, And it's still tragic that someone's killed while they're sleeping, or even someone just getting beat up by a sleepwalker. It's still tragic. But parasomnia, pseudo-suicide, you just die in the middle of the night. And sleep disorder specialists look at this stuff and they go, we believe this is real. We actually believe this is a real thing. Because if you can drive 14 miles and open a door and beat someone to death with a tire iron and choke out someone else to drive to a police station and admit to the crime... Could you walk into traffic? Now, someone walking into traffic... and they, See, here's the thing. We have tons of cases of people doing this. We just don't know if they're sleepwalking or not. Being a sleepwalker and walking into traffic, that could be classified as an accident. They have people who jump off their balcony middle of the night. They had a history of sleep disorders. They had a history of sleepwalking. Did this person accidentally just fall off the balcony? They thought they were going somewhere. Did they commit suicide or was it a combination of the two? People with a long history of sleep disorders being found the next day with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And you have sleep specialists going, they may have loaded the gun in their sleep. Tobias Wong was an artist, an up-and-coming artist in New York City. Long history of sleepwalking. It was actually, a lot of people thought it was kind of funny and charming. Sometimes he'd wake up and there'd be a, a, a steak dinner that he had woken up and cooked in the middle of the night. Sometimes he'd come, there'd be little arts and crafts that he had made in the middle of the night. Sometimes he'd make tiny little hats for his cats. So he could do complex actions while deep asleep. And he'd been able to do it his entire life. So one morning, this up-and-coming artist is found hanging in his apartment. It's obviously ruled as suicide. He's the only person there. No one else had a motive. He's hanging. Suicide. But his family and his friends and sleep researchers who have looked at this go, he may have hung himself in his sleep. The reason why I think that's more terrifying than murdering someone in your sleep, because while that is 100% awful, right? You can figure out like a motive. You, You can make some sense of the tragedy. With this, the person's just dead. And you go, anyone who's lost a friend to suicide, 
you always go, what if I had picked up that phone? What if I had made that phone call? Oh, I should have stopped by. Why didn't I stop by along? And, you know, why didn't I stop by all those times? It doesn't take away the pain that that person died, but it takes away the pain of the suicide being the cause of death. I remember once I had a friend who was going through a really, really hard divorce. She found out her husband was cheating on her. And it was this big thing, and she was completely heartbroken and all this stuff. And how could he do such a thing? And she hated him, and she loved him, and and all of this stuff was going on. And it obviously went on for like months and months and months. And I remember once I was talking to her, and I said, had he died, this is kind of cold-hearted, but had he died the day before he announced that he was going to divorce you, you would have never stopped loving him. But because it went a day longer, he hate his guts. Uh, he would have died a uh, he died a man who loved you to the end, even though he was having the affair and everything on you. You wouldn't have known any of that. You wouldn't have known any of that. And I always think that <laughs> in context, it was a comforting thing. Basically, I was saying basically I was trying to say that we have to take things as a whole. You can't take the last thing somebody does or this thing that happened at this point in their life and have it define everything. Either way, you can't have them do one great thing and go, well, then everything they did was great. Or you have them do one horrible thing and you go, well, everything they did was horrible. Outside of obviously some sort of inhumane act. I'm talking about like in the in the in in this context. Again, you could go, what if Godzilla destroyed Japan, Jason? was You understand what I mean? Like in the context of a relationship, you're going to have ups and downs, depending on how these things play out. You have to take a look at the whole picture. It's kind of, kind of what I was saying. And still, I think there's context lost there. But, but that's my point. If you lose somebody on June 13th, they die in a car accident. It's tragic. You can't believe it. You're going to have to go on without them. It's awful. But in a world where they don't die in that accident, but for whatever reason, they take their life on the 14th, you're like, oh my god! Like, what could I have done differently? And and it's just the it's a interesting. It's a very very complex issue how people die. And suicide absolutely complicates that. I'm I'm a strict non-suicide person. I'm a strict anti-suicide person because of these questions that are always left. But this makes this even more a, a super complicated issue because we have real world ramifications of committing suicide versus dying. Again, if you murder someone in your sleep, there's trials that can go on. You could be innocent. They could have sleep specialists. If you just someone just wakes up and you're hanging, for one, this I'm just going straight black and white. This might sound like I'm diminishing stuff, but insurance payments, life insurance in a lot of U.S. states, I think in most of them, will not pay out for suicides. But if you did it in your sleep, if it was an accident, your family could be taken care of. If it's ruled a suicide, $100,000 life insurance, nope. Not going to pay it out. So there's an important you, there's important distinctions here. One, it's the emotional distinction of being able to say, no, they killed themselves in their sleep. So they weren't at this moment of despair. They didn't feel destroyed. They didn't feel left. They didn't feel alone. It was, it was an accident. They made a noose. They loaded the gun. They shot themselves, but it was an accident. They didn't mean to. They were asleep. The insurance purposes... Religious purposes. I mean, people who commit suicide... This episode's really dark, and I apologize for that, but... Religious issues. Catholicism, if you commit suicide, that's like an unforgivable sin. You're... It's... it's You're punished for it. 
But what if you didn't do it? What if you did not kill yourself? But it looks like you did. And I'm not talking about like a staged hanging because you owe the CIA money or someone's trying to cover something up. You were asleep watching SNL and then the next morning people find you dead. And your Roman Catholic parents are besides themselves. So all of these issues come into play over something that as far as we know may not even exist, but in theory most likely does. Even the sleep specialists are going, we have a name for it. And I'm sure there have been people who woke up, just like this guy woke up as he was standing in the police station. People may have woke up right when they had the bottle of Tylenol in their hands and being like, what in the world is going on? Who People who woke up right when that hammer cocked back. But for those who don't and those who leave that legacy behind, what if it's not suicide? It's... Weird, it almost feels like a life raft in a way. I have a friend who killed himself. And (sighs) some friends, you know everything that's going on in their lives. Some friends, you know a little bit. Some friends are really good at hiding it. He hung himself a couple years ago in the middle of the night. And I remember thinking, I remember he invited me to go over and watch movies at his house. He said, hey, you should come over. We watch movies every month. You should come over and watch movies and da 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 I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking after he hung himself. I walked by his house um, sometimes going through town. I remember thinking, like, what if I, what if I was able to, like, what if I take, this is so dumb because obviously he had a huge social circle. I'm not going to go into super details about him because he's a local and stuff like that, but. Obviously, people in town would know who I'm talking about, but he has this huge social circle. He was a mover and shaker in town. He's he's a young man. He's younger than me. And I had this thought. I go, what if just the simple, what if what if I had gone over to watch movies with him every other month? Or if I had taken out that amount of time to go over there, could, could I have noticed something? Could I have, it, 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 it feels, it feels it both uh, vain Right? It feels vain that I could have been the one to help. And at the same time, it feels a little like self-flagellation. Punishing myself for something that I don't really, didn't really have any control over. I didn't know 100% of the circumstances of the, his whole life. I don't know if he suffered with uh, with issues his whole life. Or if it was caused by, you know, events. Or I don't know. I don't know. But it's it, it, it's interesting because, and I'm going to wrap it up like this. We want to find meaning in things. And suicide, suicide like that, obviously someone's like dying of cancer or something like that. We, I, I get it, right? Like someone's like, you know what? I got, the doctor says I have six months left. I want to go, go out in the ocean, jump off a boat. That's, I, we can have that discussion. But when people are, suicide is, seems to be such a chaotic element of life. That I think it kind of puzzles everyone. It kind of hurts everybody, right? And and it's so, it's it's the antithesis of what everything else seems to be trying to do. Which from the the fly buzzing around your apartment to you, everything's trying to stay alive. So when someone kills themselves, it's this. It's just weird to me. It's funny because I always joke about people who believe in ridiculous conspiracy theories, how they try to find patterns and meanings and reasons for things. Oh, this 
matches this and the reason why this calendar does this and these eight numbers add up to this politician's birthday. And because humans need to find reason in things. Planes just can't crash into a building. There has to be this massive 80-year buildup to that, right? Can't just be one dude telling 20 dudes to do something. It has to be this massive... Because that doesn't make sense. That makes the world so fragile and vulnerable that one person could tell 20 people to kill 3,000 people and change the way that an entire nation works. It's too random. So there has to be this huge thing and Simpsons predicts it and all that stuff. And it's funny because a lot of times I, I know that as a fact, but when I read this story that Fabio sent me, I thought of my friend, you know? And I thought, maybe, maybe he didn't kill himself. Maybe it was this. Maybe it wasn't despair and loneliness or whatever else. Maybe it was this. When we're faced with facts that we don't understand, we want to understand them. We want to find some sort of order in them. And so we'll cling to any life raft that uh, comforts us. Sometimes it's a kooky conspiracy theory. Sometimes it's a couple articles that your buddy sends you via Gmail about uh, how some people who appear to have killed themselves actually uh, didn't or didn't mean to. It may not be the most rational life raft, but it keeps us afloat. Makes sense of things that otherwise don't make sense. Okay, so this has been a pretty this has been a pretty depressing week of Dead Rabbit Radio. Yesterday's episode was pretty rough. This episode was actually a lot rougher um, than I had planned on it being. I think tomorrow I was going to do something, uh, a fun alien, well, it wasn't fun. It was a terrifying alien abduction story. I think I'm going to switch it up. I think I'm going to try to find some lighthearted stuff for tomorrow. Let's end the week on some happy stories that aren't. um, But hopefully, I mean, even though these episodes, these past couple episodes have been depressing, hopefully you've been able to find some sort of, um, I don't know. I mean, they're just, they've just been pretty depressing, so. If you are having thoughts of suicide, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And that's for the United States. But um, put some resources in the show notes if you aren't in the United States. I love you guys. Uh, DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. But I'm glad you listened to it today. We'll have a really fun, upbeat episode tomorrow. I love you guys. Stay safe. I'll see you later.